Father, we thank you for this day and around the world, all the saints, all your disciples are meeting together, celebrating the resurrection from the dead that you are the first fruits of your son, Jesus. He is the one that enabled us to have forgiveness of sins. And we recall this day that took place so long ago, but we look forward, we look ahead to what we will experience, the intimate fellowship with Jesus himself. And we ask that you would help us to be prepared for that day, that meeting, that face-to-face conversation that we will have. We also ask that you would use your word to enlighten us, to encourage us in these days which are evil, that we might know exactly how to act, how to respond, how to walk in this world that is passing away. So with your help, we'll do so by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, having doubts is a part of the process of achieving true faith. I I believe it is married to it. It enables us to walk forward in our faith when we confront doubts. When explaining truth, there can be natural hesitations and reservations. Clarity may be necessary for those who seek truthful answers in order to establish understanding. You just want to know exactly what is going on. When someone says, what do you mean? Or what do you mean exactly? They are seeking to rid their understanding of ambiguity and uncertainty. When truth is placed in writing and someone doesn't quite understand, it can be because of lack of information. It can be because of structure of the sentences or paragraphs or even misspellings. Now to illustrate this, I'm going to read to you 12 church bulletin announcements that need a little clarifying. Number one, and by the way, these are real church announcements. Scouts are saving aluminum cans, bottles, and other items to be recycled. Proceeds will be used to cripple children. Number two, low self-esteem support groups will meet next Thursday at 7 and 8.30 p.m. Please use the back door. Number three, ushers will eat latecomers. Number four, for those who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. Number five, remember in prayer the many who are sick in our church and community. Number six, ladies, don't forget the rummage sale. It is a good chance to get rid of those things not worth keeping around the house. Bring your husbands. Number seven, Don't let worry kill you off. Let the church help. (laughs) Number eight, applications are now being accepted for two-year-old nursery workers. Number nine, Lent is a period for preparing for Holy Weed and Easter. Ten, my joke is easy and my burden is light. Number 11, the pastors on vacation, massages can be given to the church secretary. Number 12, this being Easter Sunday, we will ask Mrs. Lewis to come forward and lay an egg on the altar. So I think a little clarity is called for in these church announcements. Now, obviously, this clarification in the content of these church bulletins is a little skewed. Well, this can also happen by way of trying to find information to know exactly what truth is and you seek out that understanding and it's our job to do so 
But when Jesus resurrected 2,000 years ago, almost everyone would have doubted that this would have been true, whether through spoken testimony or written word. If somebody told you that an individual raised from the dead and is walking around, you'd say, there would be a certain amount of incredulity. You'd be incredulous. Oh, come on. This has never happened before. And so it would be very natural to doubt. Now, I'd like you to turn over to John chapter 20 if you have your Bibles or your electronic Bible on your phone or tablet if you have one. And there's this guy there by the name of Didymus. Now, you know him better as Thomas, but in John chapter 20 and in verse 24, this was a man who had to be shown what the truth was. He doubted, and he didn't want to doubt. Like all of us, we we don't want to doubt what truth is, but he was very skeptical, which again is natural. Verse 24 of John chapter 20 says, now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger or finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hand. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, there was no way that Thomas was going to believe that third day after Jesus died on the cross that he would come back to life. He would have to be shown. He would need to see it with his own eyes. And this is where his doubt came in, but his doubt was relieved because the living word of God had shown up. Now, there were also two disciples. If you turn over to Luke chapter 24, we're going to pick it up in verse 13. And these two disciples were on the road to Emmaus. Now, Emmaus was about seven or eight miles from Jerusalem. And it was the morning, <clears throat> on Sunday morning, they were walking towards Emmaus, towards the north, and they were having a conversation, and they end up running into this individual, which we know is Jesus. And in verse 13 of chapter 24 of the book of Luke, it says, Now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas, and this is short for Cleopatros, meaning renowned father. Uh, He asked them, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us they went to the tomb early in the morning but didn't find his body they came and told us that they had seen a vision 
of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Cleopas and his traveling companion were going to need some further information to dispel the doubt. Even though the women had told him that Jesus had risen from the dead, Jesus, he is the one that provided the clarity from the Old Testament. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament. And everything that was spoken about the Messiah was in the Old Testament. Now, where would Jesus maybe have taken them in the Old Testament? And you have to remember the context of the day. You had the Sadducees and you had the Pharisees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, nor did they believe in angels. They thought that once you died, that's it. You're done. Game over. You cease to exist. But the Pharisees, they believed both in angels and the resurrection. And so that was floating around. That was a major theological debate at the time. And of course, the Bible does teach that there is a resurrection from the dead. In Job chapter 19, if you'd like to turn over there, Job knew that one day he would be resurrected. And in Job chapter 19, I'll just read it for you here if you're not there. Verse 26, it says, After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh... I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. So it's very possible Jesus would have reminded them about Job. Job understood that he would be resurrected. And Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And so he explains that to them and they're getting their doubt relieved by a study of the Old Testament. Also, It tells us in Psalm 91, and you can go ahead and turn there. In Psalm 91, the Messiah was promised long life. Now, before we get there, if you remember Jesus, he was tempted in the wilderness. And he was led out there after fasting. You guys remember for how many days he went without food, water? It's 40 days he was out there. And Satan came to him, and he knew he was hungry. And I know that... If I was fasting for 40 days, I'd be extremely hungry. Uh, I I used to fast a lot for sports. And when you start fasting and you have to lose some weight, you can usually get past the first day and then your hunger subsides. It goes away. And you get into the second and third day, it's okay. And then the fourth day or the fifth day, your hunger comes back and your body is telling you, feed me, feed me now. And then if you decide not to for the next couple of days, then you can go for several more days, maybe even up to 10 days or so, and your body will let you not feed it. But then the hunger comes back with a vengeance. And then the same cycle will ensue for a few more days. But after you get to about 20, 25, or 30 days, your body starts feeding on itself. You are weak. You are incapacitated. You hardly want to open up your eyes. You don't know if you can carry on. Of course, Jesus, I believe, was sustained supernaturally. I wouldn't recommend that anybody go 40 days 
without eating anything at all. But Jesus was definitely hungry. His body was consuming itself at this particular point. So Satan shows up, and it says in Matthew 4, 4, after he was fasting for 40 days, Satan said, go ahead and take these stones and make them into bread. And Jesus responded, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then he took them to the highest point of the temple, and on the top of the temple, and the temple would have looked over everything. It would have been looking towards the Mount of Olives to the east, and you could probably almost see the Mediterranean towards the west, and you could see very far towards the south and towards the north, there would have been a hill. That's where Calvary was located at that point. And he put them up on top of the temple, and he said that he wanted to have him cast himself down. That's what Satan said to Jesus. And Jesus turned around to him and said, uh, do not put the Lord to the test. Now, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 6, I'm going to read you the text there. It says, if you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, that is a reference to Psalm 91. Now, I'll get there in a second. The third a temptation that Jesus was given. Remember what that was? He was taken to a high mountain and he said, if you will simply bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of this earth. And Jesus responded by saying, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So those are the temptations that he went through. But concerning the Messiah, he was told, or everyone was told in the scriptures in Psalm 91, that he would be born up if he would cast his foot against a stone. And this is what it says in Psalm 91, where the Messiah was not only going to be protected in that way, casting his foot against a stone, but also with a long life. In verse 9, it says, if you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord, who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And this is referring to Jesus Christ having the long uh, long life. The reason we know this is because previous in verse 12, it talks about casting his foot against a stone. So it refers to the Messiah. Now, going on with this, we know that David will be resurrected as well. And so he's dealing with the resurrection here. In Psalm 23, verse 4, it says, Surely, excuse me, verse 6, it says, Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord for how long? forever and so we know that we're going to be resurrected and by the way there are tons of verses in the old testament that talk about the resurrection for the sadducees not to believe this this is where it becomes a problem of proper exegesis looking in the scriptures reading what it has to say and interpreting it properly they did not do that they were learning from men who made things up and of course that is the same thing we have today there are lots of teachers out there that are just making things up, that are not scriptural whatsoever, and they're leading people astray by the thousands, even the tens of thousands. And that's why we need to be solid in the scriptures. So Jesus is giving them a Bible study about the Old Testament, how it teaches there's going to be a resurrection. 
All of us here, should the Lord tarry in our estimation, he's right on time as far as his time clock is concerned, but we're saying, why are you waiting so long, Lord? Just come on back. Well, unless he comes back and we get raptured, we are all going to perish. We are all going to die. We are all going to, like Job says, have our flesh rot from our bodies. That's what's going to happen. But God is going to reconstitute our bodies, and we are going to be resurrected just like Jesus. Now, he taught them about the resurrection, but he also explained to them that the law and the prophets, that's where he began, they talked about Jesus being crucified. And it it is in such exquisite detail. I want you to turn over to Psalm 22. Now, I'm going to read through this entire psalm here so you get the flavor of what the crucifixion was going to be like. And even some of the words that Jesus mentioned on the cross are listed here in verse 1 of Psalm 22. This is the crucifixion chapter from the Old Testament that was prophesied that the Messiah would endure. In verse 1 it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who uttered those words? That was Jesus on the cross. Remember that? So far from the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and am not silent yet you are enthroned as the holy one you are the praise of israel in your father fathers put their trust excuse me in your fathers put their trust they trusted and you delivered them they cried to you and were saved in you they trusted and were not disappointed but i am a worm and not a man scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Remember, they were mocking Jesus at the foot of the cross. This is what was prophesied that would take place yet in the future. It goes on to say in verse 9, You brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey, opening or open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. This would have been the case if he is hanging on the cross, and the spikes had been uh, run through this portion of the wrist here. His arm sockets would have been pulled out from the weight of his body. He goes on to say, my heart has melted to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of the earth. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. And that would have been the Roman soldiers who were around him crucifying him. And it says, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O strength, come quickly to me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. 
Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember to turn and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations all the rich of the earth will feast and worship all who go down to the dust will kneel before him those who cannot keep their themselves alive posterity will serve them future generations will be told about the Lord they will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn for he has done it is that not the full death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his glorification the end of this particular passage here when it talks about there will be those who will proclaim the word to the future generations it's speaking of us especially in the millennium period all those individuals who go through the tribulation who make it through and repopulate the earth guess who's going to be instructing them in the ways of the lord it is going to be all of you you will know the lord it's going to be in your heart the word is written there you're going to have your resurrected body you're going to be in deep communion and fellowship with the holy spirit you're going to know his will exactly the sinful nature will be gone away and you're going to start with the children you're going to say you need to know the lord let me tell you about him let me tell you what he did and how he came down and he was crucified you're going to tell the whole story and there's going to be a temple set up in Jerusalem and you're going to teach them about the temple now where will you be when you do that I don't know we could be scattered around the entire earth now the earth is going to change a little bit I think Australia and the continents and South America and Europe all of that will still be there it's going to be changed a little bit but the time in which we will exist there I believe God is going to take the laws of entropy the laws of decay and I believe he's going to suspend those that's because children will live to be a hundred years if they die at a hundred years they will be considered to be just an infant just a child so people will live for hundreds of years at that time and we will be able to instruct them and so that's what this particular passage is talking about not only the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ but what's going to take place later and Jesus was giving this instruction to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus And of course, we'll find out later that their hearts were just burning within them when this Bible study was going on. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of times you go through the scriptures, especially if you get to Chronicles and some of the parts in Genesis and you're reading so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. My heart doesn't burn within me. My eyelids drag when I start reading some of that stuff. But when you get to some of these passages that are directly meant to minister to us, then our hearts burn within us if you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of you. But you have to be in the Word for that to happen. If you're not in the Word, how can you say amen? Now, if you can recite verses in your head, that's great. You can say amen to that. And we're to sing and make melody in our heart to the Lord all the time. We're to pray continually. And if you do that, you are going to be fit for the kingdom to be witnesses, according to this passage, to those who come. You will have God's word just dwelling within you in a deep way. Now, there would have been many other scriptures that Jesus would have reminded these two while they were walking on the road to Emmaus, but let's return to their story in Luke chapter 24 in verse 28. It says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly 
Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together, and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Now, I'm sure you've heard the story that when he broke the bread that revealed the wounds in his hands, uh, and they would have seen that if that was the case because you're reaching out at that point, and even if he would have had a cloak on, that would have been revealed. But I think it was more of a supernatural thing because their understanding was darkened, they didn't know it was Jesus, and they had seen Jesus. They were disciples of Jesus. They were with him, but they didn't recognize him. Now, did he look different? I would say the answer is no. He didn't look different. It's just their understanding was darkened about who he was, and he just relieved that understanding, especially with the bread. Jesus is the bread of life, and all of a sudden, all of these teachings would have come flooding back to them in a supernatural way. And so clarity came through the Word of God. That's where their hearts were burning, by the living Word of God, Jesus Christ himself. Going on in verse 40, says, When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of boiled fish. <clears throat> you know, I skipped a couple of verses there. What happened here? Must have been early in the morning. Anyhow, let me tell you what was going on. They had the doors locked. They were, they were there on the inside. And all of a sudden, Jesus just... You remember Star Trek? Materialized? Beam me up, Scotty? He, now, I don't know how it happened exactly. I don't know if he slowly materialized in the room and they started seeing him just appear or if it was spontaneous and instant, just like, boom, there he is, right there. Now, that would startle anybody, right? Sometimes I'll come into the house through the garage, and my wife will be in there, and I come in slowly and quietly, and I'll stand right behind her. And as soon as she turns around, she kind of screams, oh, you know, her heart skips a beat, that type of thing. Startles her a little bit. I, I really love doing that. But anyhow, the, Jesus, when he showed up, it would have been startling to them. Now, in the vernacular of our day, it would have been something like, hey, what's up? Jesus just showed up. And they probably, I'm sure some of them stumbled backwards at that particular point. And so he goes, hey, what's up? You got anything to eat? It's like, you just appear and you say, give you something to eat? What's going on here? Well, they gave him, verse 42, a piece of boiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scripture. Just as clarity came to them 
And it was by the power of the Spirit of God that they had this clarity. The natural man, the natural woman, the one who does not have Christ, it is virtually impossible for them to come to a proper understanding of the Scriptures without the Holy Spirit. You have to rely on the Holy Spirit. He is the one that illuminates everything. If you just read it, sometimes you're going to be critical. Your understanding is going to be lacking. You may even scoff at the words of the scripture. But when the Holy Spirit's illuminate, the Holy Spirit illuminates the word, then it becomes living to us. Verse 46, he told them, this is what was written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Now, my particular question when I get here is, where does it say that Jesus would rise on the third day? In the Old Testament, it doesn't in those specific terms. And so you have to start thinking, well, what kind of foreshadowing would have been used? What type of symbolism would have been there for them to understand that Jesus was going to rise on the third day? And by the way, if you want to do the study and pursue it, there are some people that say, well, no, Jesus was crucified maybe on Wednesday or maybe on Thursday because it needed a full three days for him to be in the grave to have this scripture be fulfilled. And by Jewish reckoning, uh, he could have been crucified on the first day, which was Friday, spent the whole day Saturday in the tomb and just at first daylight On Sunday, he could have been resurrected, and that would have been considered three days. Three days did not have to transpire in 24-hour periods for the Jewish understanding at the time. And people go to great lengths uh, to say that he was not crucified on Friday, and that's fine. For me, it doesn't matter. He still was buried, and he rose from the dead. And if we celebrated on Friday, so what? It doesn't matter. Do you think Jesus was crucified on, or rose from the dead on this Sunday, 2,000 years ago? It wasn't. Passover already started. It's Passover when Jesus was crucified and resurrected from the dead. It, it's already taken place. But just like Christmas, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. It doesn't matter to me. I, I just know he was crucified. And we can get hung up on these little minutiae, or like the Jehovah Witnesses will say, He wasn't crucified on a cross. He was crucified on a stake. So what? He was crucified. He died for us. His blood was given so that our sins might be forgiven. And we can spend all day arguing about all this stuff. And sometimes it's fun to talk about these types of things. But we talk about them and go, okay, let's move on. Let's go to that which is important. And that's what Jesus wants us to know. That he died and he rose and it was three days later. So... I'll say again, well, where was this? Is there a story that you know of that maybe somebody died and was resurrected three days later in the Old Testament? Or was there a foreshadowing of something like that that would take place? Or was there a father who took his son to be sacrificed and on the third day come back to life. Was there anyone who was like that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Yeah, Genesis 22 and verse 3. And of course, this is about Abraham. Now, if you remember, Abraham was going to go away and he was going to bring a sacrifice for the Lord. And the Lord told him, sacrifice your son, your only son. 
And he took him. And remember, Isaac at this particular point, it depends on who you listen to, the studies, 17 to 30. We don't know how old he was. Come on, son, we're going to have a sacrifice. Uh, Where's the sacrifice, father? Well, I got a story to tell you. And so he goes along, and who carried the bundle of sticks? Who carried the wood? It was Isaac who carried the wood. You see, this is a foreshadowing of Jesus who would be crucified, carrying the wood himself on that which he is going to be sacrificed with, and the father was going to do so willingly. So this was in the mind of the father, but Abraham theorized that if the promise comes through Isaac that God the Father will resurrect him. And so he trusted him for it. And that's the same thing that Jesus did. Well, it goes on to say that he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place had told him, excuse me, that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance and he said to his servants, stay here with his donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Not I will come back to you, but we will come back to you. And this is where we get that Jesus would have been in the grave and on the third day would have risen from the dead. This is where Abraham was trusting God that on the third day out, he would have been crucified and raised from the dead or he would have been burned as a burnt offering and raised from the dead. Now, what mountain did this take place on? Calvary. It's the same mountain. It's also the threshing floor of Aruna. If you go to Israel, you can see that. And by the way, I, I tuned in this morning to a service at the garden tomb it it was wonderful to see it i've been there before and you can see the tomb where jesus was uh, laid to rest at least they theorize it's it it's one of the things about israel if you go over to israel they'll say this is where jesus was born according to the orthodox church the catholic church will say no this is where jesus was born according to the catholic church and you have the protestant version that's over there and same thing with the tomb well, is this the real tomb? Uh, is this where Jesus was actually raised in Nazareth? Uh, where are all these things located? Uh, Patty has a, a saying she uh, likes to talk about. Like when we went on the Temple Mount, she wanted to know if those were the stones that Jesus had actually walked on. And I, I said, no, they're not. But then we got to the bedrock where the temple would have been. And she goes, is this authentic? This is authentic. You can know that this is the place. This is the actual place that Jesus went. This road to Emmaus, they have pictures of the road to Emmaus and what's left of it today, this little path that goes along. And that would have been authentic. Now, wouldn't you like to walk on the road to Emmaus going, I hope Jesus shows up and gives me a Bible study out of the Old Testament. That would be a great thing if you took a hike like that. And and so when you go to Israel and you think about those things like, is this the exact place when you go to the Western Wall and you go through the, the tunnel, the rabbi's tunnel that's along there? Those are the actual stones that Jesus would have seen at his time that he would have been there. And you walk over uh, as you're going, I believe it's to the north. As you're going to the north, you come along these green colonnades and it's all cemented in and you can't go there. But Jesus would have walked through that particular opening right there. You look at the gate beautiful and it's all... Uh, 
bricked up or, or blocked up right now. And the actual one is below that as far as the excavations are concerned. But Jesus would have walked there and the, the road that he took to be crucified. You can walk on that road and that's authentic. That's over there. And I would encourage anybody, if you have a day in your life to go there, to go there to see these things. And so this has been proven true out of the Old Testament that Jesus was going to be resurrected, that he was going to suffer according to the scriptures, and he was going to raise on the third day according to the scriptures in Genesis chapter 22, verse 13. <clears throat> now, all of these things were given for the disciples that they would have <clears throat> excuse me, their doubt removed. The evidence is here. Remember somebody else, <clears throat> they, they didn't have quite enough information. It was a woman, and, and she knew that when the Messiah comes, he would enlighten everybody. And that would have been the Samaritan woman. Remember Jesus showed up and wanted something to drink, and she not only had one husband, but <clears throat> five, and the one she was living with was not her husband at that point. And then in John chapter 4, verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Well, he came and he explained everything. Remember her transformation? She went and got the whole town. Once she had the understanding, once she had clarity, the doubt just went away. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had doubts before, you know, when it comes to like eschatology. Well, is it? Is that the way it really is supposed to go? Is this how salvation actually works? And you go to the word and it settles the issue once and for all. As long as you interpret it properly, you'll get the understanding. And just take note that the Samaritan woman, she had all of her doubts removed concerning the Messiah. He showed up. Now for us, Jesus shows up in the form of the word. Now, in, back in Luke chapter 24, verse 47, <clears throat> it says, And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. When they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. <clears throat> so this is the account of the resurrected Jesus Christ, and there's several events that took place. Uh, it, this is just not the whole story here. You have to go to the other Gospels to see exactly what he did after his resurrection. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it talks about him appearing to more than 500 individuals at one time and at the writing of the book. Some of them were still alive. Many of them were still alive. And so they could contest to the truthfulness, the veracity, the, the idea that Jesus did rise from the dead. He left enough witnesses behind for this. And this has been transferred to us through the centuries. Now, for us who believe and hold to the scriptures, all of our doubt will dissipate if we remain in the scriptures. We will have clarity and understanding concerning the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, as well as our own resurrection. Now, as I get older, <clears throat> I think about that day. Uh, my life is I think two-thirds over. Maybe I have another third left. Well, maybe half because I'm only 40. But if, 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 if we live a little bit longer, you know, if we go on a little bit farther and Jesus doesn't come back, we're going to have that day. 
that day where we perish from this earth and then the resurrection. And I think about that. I meditate on that. Like, okay, how am I going to go? You know, most people go by heart attack or cancer. And if I had to pick one, which one would I pick? And, you know, I, I, I think about stuff like that. Not in a morbid sense. Just like, okay, how's it going to happen? And then what's going to happen? And I read the scripture. Well, I'm going to be with the Lord. What's that going to be like? Is it a tunnel with a light at the end of it? Or am I just going to, boom, appear like Jesus did in the upper room? Is that the way it's going to happen? But I look forward to that. That is my hope. The blessed appearing of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how we're supposed to live in this life. He has given us a plan on going ahead. Now, we remember the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, how the Bible talked about it, and then he left us with instructions. Now that you got this information, now that there is clarity, now that you have understanding, Jesus tells us, this is what I want you to do. You've already believed. Now, because you believe, this is what he wants you to do. I know you, most all of you know this already. But I'm going to remind you, Matthew chapter 28, please turn over there. I want you to, everyone to read this one. I want to make sure you know it is the Lord saying it, not me. I'm just telling you what he said. This is Matthew chapter 28. This is also known as the Great Commission. This is the instruction he gave us to do while we wait for that final day here on earth and a resurrection from the dead. It says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to a mountain where Jesus had told them to go. We don't know what mountain that was. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. There it is again, this doubt that is there. So it's normal for everybody to doubt. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the disciples of Jesus were given three things to do. One, go. What does that mean, go? It means go to your neighbor. It means go to your school, go to your place of work, go to the restaurant, wherever you go, be a witness for Christ. Then what does he say to do? Baptize. Now, you can't go to the restaurant, get somebody saved at the restaurant, say, let's go to the sink in the kitchen, and I'm going to get you baptized. You can't do that. But if somebody receives Christ, get them baptized. I know there are some churches, even some Calvary chapels, they say, we have a discipleship program for you to go through, and when you're all done, we're going to get you baptized. That's not the way it works. You believe, get wet, completely wet. Get dunked all the way. That's the way Jesus was baptized. That's the way we should baptize, unless there's some mitigating circumstances. That's a modus operandi, so to speak. The way to get baptized is full immersion. So he gave them those two things. And then the third thing was teach. Now, how can you teach unless you know what it says? We have to know what it says. Now, is there some specific person who has to do the baptizing? No, there's not. Is there some particular person that is supposed to go? Or do all three of these things apply to all three of us? Yes, they apply to all three of us. You know, uh, some of you may know Stan and TK. Uh, if you know them, great. If you don't know them, well, TK baptized Stan in a pool at Krista's grandmother's house inside. Great, wonderful. He's not a pastor. They're both saints. 
and he baptized him. He was baptized just like that. You don't have to be somebody special to go baptize. Just go baptize them once they believe. Don't just find people, come here, I need to put you in the pool. No, you, you need to give the gospel and they have to accept it and you can't force it upon them. Once they have that instruction, because we're supposed to be teaching, you make disciples. Now, how do you make disciples? You don't go, get them saved, baptize them, teach them about the Lord and say, see ya. It is a thing where you continue, you teach and you give life examples and you show them the scripture and it doesn't end. It continues all the time. Last week or the week before I told you how blessed we are to be able to go on YouTube and just listen to messages. Uh, this past week, several times I was able to listen all day to YouTube videos and, and on teaching, not on skateboarding or surfing or anything like that, but on, on teaching. And it was just great. At the end of the day, I've already gained a few pounds, but that just like filled me up, you know, and I was able to just go, wow, that that was so enlightening, some of that stuff. And we're constantly supposed to be learning and constantly supposed to be teaching. You've heard me use this illustration before about the Dead Sea. You know why it's dead? It doesn't flow out. Everything flows into it, but it doesn't flow out. You go to the Sea of Galilee, it's teeming with fish. You can walk up to the edge. I remember being there and just being able to look in the water, and it's clear, very clear. You can see the fish right there along the shoreline. They're inside the Sea of Galilee. So water flows into the Sea of Galilee, and it flows out and goes down to the Dead Sea and stops. If you take in the Word of God all the time, and it goes in, and it just stops, you're kind of dead in your faith. You're not exercising your faith. That's where you get into the book of James. Not that you're saved by the works, but the works will proceed from you. If you get into the word, you're supposed to dispense it to others. That means we have to open up our mouths. Now, does that frighten you? It might. It's okay. There's plenty of things to fear in this life, but that's not one of them. And when God gets a hold of you and you start teaching people, oh, it is the greatest thing. And you don't have to do it in front of a bunch of people. Just take one person. Let me tell you about Christ and what he has done. So that's our primary focus. Go, baptize, and teach. And I'm going to say this. Some will think it's controversial. But we're not teaching a social gospel. We're not to go out and reform government. We're not to go out and promote social justice. We're not to go out and improve the economic status of individuals. We're not to go out and elevate morality. We're not to go out and make circumstances better for those who are around us. It's not about having a happier life. It's not about curing loneliness. And it's not about social issues. Now, some Christians would say, but these things are important. They are, but they're secondary. Our primary focus is to make disciples. When somebody gets saved... The other stuff just flows effortlessly. And yeah, should we be good citizens? Absolutely, we should. But that's not our focus. Our focus is to be making disciples and all the rest of that just happens. When people were stealing before, well, they no longer steal because they, it, they read Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Thou shalt not steal. And so you become a disciple of Jesus and it just flows. Now, are we perfect in that? No, we're not. But we can be perfect as far as doing the will of Christ if we go and we baptize 
and we teach. My encouragement to you, Jesus died and resurrected from the dead and gave us instruction. On this day that we remember his resurrection, may we do his will effortlessly as we submit to the Holy Spirit of God. Now what we're going to do is we're going to remember his death, burial, and resurrection by the receiving of communion here. And the way we're going to do this, if Kim, you want to come on up, we are going to, and Madison, if you want to come on up, what we're going to do is I'm going to have you guys one row at a time, just take your time and come up, grab a cup and go back around to your aisle and just walk back down to your seat. Hold on to that cup until we can all participate receiving it together. Now, what I'd like to do is Kim will start And if you just need to say a prayer of thanks to God before you get up, go ahead and do it. If you need to ask for some forgiveness of sins committed this last week or even this morning, go ahead and do it. We know that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I'll give a little more further instruction about receiving communion once we have the music started and everybody has their cup in hand. So if we could turn down the center lights here, I'd appreciate that.